This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about resilience and coping with loss when those around you don't acknowledge the enormity or significance of the loss. This has been the case with stillbirth and and early infant deaths. And many parents describe friends and colleagues avoiding them or minimizing their loss rather than offering support. My guest today is somebody who has never turned away from people in pain. With me is Mary Cregan from Skibbereen in Ireland, chair and founder of Phylicon, the Stillbirth and Neonatal Death Association of Ireland. And for those of you who aren't Irish speakers, Phylicon means butterfly, just so they know, Mary. <laughs> Mary is an adoption social worker who has fostered children herself for many years and worked with children in Romania after the revolution there in 1989. Then in Bosnia and Croatia during the war in the early 90s, she was part of a team of people monitoring the unaccompanied minors coming into the refugee camps and trying to place them um, in fostering relationships with families who could nurture and care for them. After the massacre in Srebrenica, she worked with traumatized women and children, trying to put care in place and secure their futures. In addition to leading Phylicon in Ireland, Mary still makes several trips to Romania each year with family and volunteers to support the alternative care projects she has in place there for young adults with disabilities. Kia ora, Mary. We are delighted to welcome you to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Great to be here. Now, Mary, you were already caring for children and trained as a social worker when you experienced the terrible loss of your daughter, Liliana, in birth. Tell us about that experience and how people responded to you at that time. It's it's a very strange time and I had a very checkered life up to that. So I was no stranger to loss at all. My mother fostered when we were young and... A few years previous to the death and birth of Liliana, we had the Ryan report and a lot of stuff going on that uh, showed what children had been going through in the institutions in Ireland. But I knew that and I could see that that's what propelled me to Romania at the time Mm -hmm. uh, to try and do something for the kids that were in the orphanages there. And I suppose I had this idea that I was maybe immune then to anything happening to my own children, which is absolutely crazy. And when I got pregnant unexpectedly at my mid-40s with Liliana, and when she died, it was absolutely horrendous. My mother had died previously, nearly 20 years before that. So, like, I, you know, traumatic death wasn't a, I wasn't a stranger to it. But, I mean, I was only in my mid-20s when she died. But this was totally different. And the fact that it was so minimized by so many around me. But the, the other side was that I was 45 and was, and I was a psychiatric social worker at the time. So was able to actually see, no, this is crazy. That's going on. You know, that there is no support for something that's so um, traumatic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you were not, you weren't uh, a vulnerable, you know, 19 year old having their first pregnancy. You were... Yeah a mature woman with a load of resources at her disposal who'd had so much experience. So how did you cope? What did you do? Well, I knew what I was going through must be common to other women. And I was able to measure it against the death of my mother, you know, that that was horrendous. But this was far, far, I was feeling this as far, far worse. And it's, 
I suppose I had the knowledge, like I had been in Romania, as you said, and that was incredibly difficult experience um, to see the situation of those children in the early 90s and like what happened in, in the Balkans as well. And so, like, I knew that I was not a wimp, for want of a better word. Yeah. Yet here I was, completely floored. Yeah. Um, I also knew I would get better and I'd feel better because otherwise the world would end. If um, if everybody who ever had uh, experienced the trauma, like I was experiencing, and then gave up, then we wouldn't have the populations of the world we would have. You know, I was, this was my reasoning at the time. And that's so I just went to That's see. incredibly pragmatic. Yeah, he's <laughs> a very practical person. But they went to see, so how can I deal with this? And I just sought for support. Now, I think I was a bit hyper at the time. I, anyone, all I wanted to do was talk about her. Yeah. I realise now that that's so common. It's normal. Yeah. Like, we don't use the word normal in Felicon. We use common. That's very common. You know, we would say to mothers and fathers who share... Um, experiences or feelings that they think are off the wall. I and mean, we was, you know, very common, actually. Yeah. You know, most of us felt that or um, something like it or we've heard of somebody else feeling that way. But all I wanted to do was talk about her. And, of course, while the tragedy of her death was there and the kind of, um, you know, the celeb status you get if there's a tragic death in your in your family or in your, you know, that lasts for a few weeks. And after that, then people were thinking, oh, you know, best to get on with it. And you're lucky you have a house full of other kids, which I had because I had six other birth children and I had two adopted children and two long-term foster children. All had been waiting, waiting for this child because the youngest was, was 11, nearly 12, and the eldest was 30. So they were all waiting for this little baby that didn't come home. So I was being told, look, you must look after them, as if I didn't know that myself, do you know? Like, yeah. I knew I had those other children. Yes, I was grateful. So I was kind of saying to people, you know, pick one of your kids there and see which one you could do without. And then they'd look back and think, oh, she's lost it. She really has lost it. And I was thinking that I was behaving like a bold teenager because no one would listen. No one could see, this is so painful, it's so bad, I'm struggling, I can't cope. There is no support, there's no help. And so, I was very but, lucky. But also that thing of when you articulated your grief and you asked for help and you asked people to get their heads around some sense of the enormity of it, they looked at you like you were, you were crazy or indulgent yeah. or a t- teenager. Yeah. I, I, yeah, like Nasty, you know, would she just get on with that? She has a house full of kids. They were telling me like that this child did not matter, yeah. but that but they didn't realize it. But that is how they felt after a while. Oh, this is a tragedy, but it's not like it was a real person. But we know that that, that um, parents who've lost their children, they couldn't be more real. Yeah, um, a lot of the women I would have worked with then in the mental health or had been silenced so their grief came out in other ways and when we unpicked it there was always an adoption story or pregnancy loss or infertility at the root of so many of them you know but was silenced they could not articulate it and um, it's very hard to do it then at the end of your life but for me there I was in the middle of my life and um, I wasn't shutting up and I thought I can't be the only one who feels like this I'm sorry, Mary, you were saying the other women and they who were silenced, it came out in other ways. Do you mean in other manifesting in other problems in their lives that yeah, eventually and then, Yeah, in relationship issues, over caring of their other children and sometimes in psychosis, you know, with what because I was working in acute um, psychiatric unit, mental health unit, it was called afterwards, which is much better of course. And um I was suddenly 
understood. And then I realized, like, Jesus, how much else is going on that I had no understanding of because it didn't happen to me. Yeah. So it was very humbling. My, you know, I, the reason I went back to study was nobody was listening to me in Romania when I was only a foster mother, mm-hmm. even though um, some of the projects we were doing, I think we were able to do them because we weren't blinded by theory, you know, that that's brilliant in practice, but it doesn't work in theory. We were always getting that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just said, look, if, you know, if I have to get a degree, well, I better get one. So I went back and I got four so that I had one for everyone I needed it for so that I could you know we're so credentialist yeah. in um, in this in this society now so I went back and got what I had to get and um, so I did have that knowledge but it was it was some direction to me it, it gave me some help but it didn't take away the suffering or the pain mm-hmm. and the people like after I went back to to work in the psychiatric services with them after Liliana died one of the first people to, um, you know, to, to sympathize with me was a patient who'd been on the ward for about two years. She acknowledged it straight wow. away. Wow. And um, the, but some of the highly trained professionals I've worked with never, ever um, acknowledged a child. And another issue was when all I wanted then, we have the replacement baby syndrome, they were calling it, all I wanted was another baby. And when I voiced that, like this is a, a physical thing, you know, and it's um, it's um, something that's it's very, very common. We won't say normal. And but when you're 45, it's unlikely it's going to happen, even though I did get pregnant and um, lost the baby at 16 weeks because they it should have been prescribed aspirin. Looks a long story. But anyway, um, the um, the, the staff around me were thinking, God, is she cracked? Like nobody thought and said, look, let's explore this. What's yeah. going on? Is it a baby you want? Yeah. Well, nobody. So that's what why. The space to grieve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what is it like? Why, why? What's the drive? Let's look at that. And um, But I had a lot of really good friends and my own family were, were excellent. And I was very lucky and I know it. And I was very lucky to meet with a few like-minded people because like I, I'm a co-founder of Thalicon um, and no one person could have done that alone. We were a team and everyone brought something that made it the, the organisation it is. Was your response to Liliana's death similar to David, your husband's, or was it different? Did he want to grieve oh, differently? totally different. Yeah. Um, and sadly, we lost our grandson this year in January. We couldn't believe we were back here again as a family he was a little neonatal death Sarah and I think that's when David started grieving Liliana that I nearly died during the delivery of Liliana for various reasons and uh, I think his shock was that the children would be without their mother as well that he just then went totally into instrumental grieving and uh, like I'd been screaming at him since we went to live in our house in 1980 and with there's two attics in it it's an old old you can see from the wall behind me and I was saying you know slab the attic slab the attic slab the attic and uh, 26 years later he slabbed the attic within two weeks because that's all he could do so that was his way of of dealing with his practical stuff and you know doing a little garden this year he finally this year that I think I was the instrumental griever and holding the family up because he I think it just all came to him this year. So, so for people who don't know, tell us, explain instrumental grieving. 
that, well, I think I'm a bit of one myself, that you, for, as I understand it and as I see it, it's you work through it. And when you say work through it, I don't mean process, processual, that you work through it in a physical way, that you actually do things, make things, and, and get through your grief in that way. A lot of men do through it. Through something else. Yeah. So, yeah. They want to do something, work. And, and uh, you know, we had this idea then that, oh, you know, men don't talk about their feelings and all that. They mightn't, but they do express them in other ways. Yeah. So it's not that just because you're not talking about something doesn't mean you're not processing it. Yeah. Is what I've learned anyway. Yeah. That they process in different ways. And I think this is so important for the whole area of grieving that, we do it differently, and there isn't there isn't a roadmap for any one person. Um, no, not at all. And you know, um, I suppose that's the narrowness sometimes of the theoretical approaches. Is it doesn't leave a whole lot of space for um, the creative. And I work through it. I work. I mean, physically work. Mm-hmm. But I, I suppose, at my time of life, I'm aware of overworking. Yeah. You know, the, the time come, and then you're much more vulnerable. And, but you can see that, like I'm, I'll be 60 next year and wisdom comes with hard knocks and experiences. You can't teach this to younger people. They have to find it themselves, the younger bereaved parents. But that, um, you know, people, they come to us, they said, look, my mother thinks I'm working too hard. I said, well, no, what's happening for you? You tell me. Because I know that I, I worked through mine. I took a piece of the shock, a piece of the trauma dealt with it and then I would put it back in the shelf again until I was able and just work through a new project or, or whatever. So talk to me about setting up Philicon. I would just met the others through various organisations, the hospital and all that and said like there's nothing outside of Dublin, okay? And here we are in Dublin South and in Galway and Tip and Tipperary and all that. And I said, like, there's nothing. And I said, look, we're just going to have to do it ourselves. So I knew I was setting something up and I thought I might have um, done maybe a research organization. But the others were saying, no, look, we need something more than that. And I think it was the creativity of the seven of us who were so different that that's what made Felicon. It just took off. And also we were, we were pushing an open door. You know, the need was there. So when we started to try and meet that need, um, <clears throat> we were welcomed. Do you think that Philicon in itself was a piece of work that helped the seven of you co-founders yeah. to also work through your grief? It did. Like when I feel when you help someone else, you help yourself. Yeah. And uh, that a few of us would have said that after our babies died, we knew we were going to do something. Yeah. And we were looking around to see what we could do. You know, that makes a child's life meaningful as well. But also it helps you to focus the experience and maybe to bring some positives to it as well you know mm. and um, we were all kind of fairly activist um, focused anyway and um, yeah it did it helped us. So tell us about Philicon and what it does. And so we looked at what was being offered by other countries and then we took it and improved it and then they took back what we were doing which we you know we did a memory box and uh, we copied San's idea in the UK but we got um, what we thought was a much nicer box. I know they forgive me for saying this because then they copied that box back. So, so tell, you know, tell, said, tell us about the memory boxes. So there's something okay, that's so the, given Our to memory you. box is a beautiful box full of beautiful things, but it's only as good. It's only a box, but it's where that box will take you. And it's what we didn't have when our babies died. Mm-hmm. So the first thing, it's only as good though as the, really as the um, professional who offers it to the family. And sometimes they will say, my baby's died and you give me a box. You know, take it away. Like where that you have to be very. It's it's the you know the whole art of relationship with the um, the grieving parents or the shocked parents. 
So uh, what we have this, and it's not about branding or anything like that, but it's Felicon is everywhere on it. And the reason for that is they'll recognize us through their trauma afterwards. And it's what we're saying is it's the message of availability. There is someone here. So the minute you open the box, if it's given out the way it's supposed to be, um, you will see a um, a leaflet and it says just support for you when your baby dies, because that's what we needed and didn't get. You open the tissue paper then, uh, because it's a gift and we have it wrapped as a gift. And there's a hand-knit blanket made by a lot of our bereaved parents from years and years ago. It's a beautiful snow white blanket to wrap your baby in or and then keep afterwards. And one mother said to us recently that she holds that blanket and sleeps with it every night and thinks of all the other mothers and fathers doing the same thing. Then there's two teddy bears and one goes with mom and dad and one goes with the baby and they swap them over before burial or cremation. We have a little lip of our little um, uh, sachet of um, lip balm, and that's for them to parent the child, to care about the child. Because when my daughter was born, um, it took me three days to have her, and uh, she was, you know, she wasn't in the best condition when she was born, even though she was full term, and I was afraid of her, and I'm not afraid of a lot. So when I said that on national radio um, a few years afterwards, the amount of calls we got to the helpline afterwards of people who felt they were able to sh- share that because they had been ashamed. Like, and I'd been ashamed. I was her mother and I was afraid of her. Mm-hmm. Whereas this this jar of balm will help you. Just put it on your little baby's lips. It will preserve their lips for the little while you have them. And you're caring for your child. You're parenting your child. It's that tending and caring. Beautiful. Yeah. It's, you know, because you're creating memories and it's a beautiful time. Uh, and people find it very hard to believe that but I know from Dara my grandson who died in January and the difference between my experience and Aoife's my daughter's that um, like she said we had six perfect days the three yeah. days with the neonatal unit and the three days when we were able to bring him home with the cuddle cot which is another thing Felicon provides so also we have the hand and footprints and if you want one of our volunteers will go in and take um clay impressions and they're beautiful and uh, they're real and when they're on your wall like people say god who a real baby wasn't it, it and was, the smallest yeah, baby i've got yeah. oh they're beautiful mm. the smallest baby i've got an imprint from was 17 weeks yeah. so you know that you uh, know that depends on how baby is presented but we'll always try you know yeah. if there's any hope at all um, so like this could be for people who have lost a baby after nine ivf um, attempts you know and lose the baby mid trimester like having something is just it's just so valuable to them and just so um it's so precious and, and in the memory box as well is a suite of leaflets and no matter what way you throw them it's going to be support 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 so that if you're in the right temper and you know get this box and you want they won't swear now and this you know so you won't have to push out but that if they just throw down the leaflets they will still see make memories yeah. and we have a camera a high definition camera because people are taking photographs on their um, on their uh, phones. That phone gets rolled over. Something happens in the cloud. They can't find their you know. So we're just saying, look, use the camera in the hospital. And staff are trained then that they come in and they'll take photographs throughout the day so that you've all this story afterwards. And there's also an organisation who does uh, photographers who. Um, who come in and um, will take portraits. So you've got the portrait of the child, you know, we would say they're from the photographers. Then you have the story of the child through the ones you will take over the three days. And then the evidence shots, we call them, are evidence images, I should say. And that will be saying, like, who's who came in and who didn't, who met my, my, my son and my daughter. And when we're doing our training, 
I showed the midwives 10 photographs and I said, you, you know, you can discard two. And they'll always discard one photograph and all it shows is um, a coat on the bed in a hospital. And that's the one I will never discard because that was the coat of my sister who died the year after. And so I said, no, that's what I mean by an evidence image. But I know she so came in there. that was Jeanette's coat. So you knew Jeanette yeah, was there. Jeanette's yeah. Coat. Yeah. yeah, so things like that. You cannot curate anyone's memories for them. Because if you keep everything, the parents themselves will decide what they want. You just keep pointed press, video, and we will video us taking the handprints of the baby then if it's possible. Sometimes it's not because, it, it, you know, if the process just can't be um, as as pretty as we'd like yeah. it to be yeah so that's what's in the memory box there's a measuring tape because babies aren't measured anymore and they can take that with them and um a little cop card holder and a certificate of life and, and things like that so it's all about making it real making, making it real real meeting your baby getting to know your baby yeah. we're going to uh, we have a bit of money coming in now despite the conditions and covid we're at the moment but we're going to get two little, um, we're writing a little storybook at the moment and we'll have two of those because then um, you can read your baby's story then and you have one of the books and they'll have the other, you know, things like that. And Mary, you mentioned the cuddle cots, which are also an important piece of giving bereaved parents time with their babies. Tell us about those. Uh, the cuddle cots were... Um, came in which was the UK UK based company put them together and they're a mat just a cooling mat that goes under the baby and it keeps baby cool so that they can stay um, with the parents because babies change after death a lot faster than an older person mm -hmm. and it's just so that baby will you know stay in a condition that they can um, stay with their parents or go home yeah you know and lots mm -hmm. of babies are going home now in Ireland and most of them are that's such a change, isn't it? To be oh, able to I mean, bring your me, baby I, like, home. I had to fight. Yeah, fight to bring Liliana home, but I did. But the coffin was closed. Yeah. But she came home for two nights for her sleepover, you know. In addition to that, that support, that's, that's sort of like, if you like, the immediate support that's around the parents. There's also the network and the remembrance services. Tell us more yeah. about those. Well, the remembrance services are parent-led and we're an inclusive organization so like even though one of us might be up there leading the service and that's because I suppose we're doing it so long and um, it's to make it as seamless as we can but it'll always be the parents doing all the rest of it you know and um, we're funded by our parents we don't get central funding we're independent which means we can maintain and watching grief and services without worrying about if it, whether it's going to impact on our funding or not but they, um, a lot of people do the fundraising because it's um, a way for them of getting their baby's name out into their family. Yeah. And, you know, they might do Patrick's party or they could do, um, you know, um, like we did a laugh for Liliana, you know, this sort of thing that you do different fundraising for your baby. Mm -hmm. And this makes the baby real as well and part of the family. And they meet the other volunteers and, you know, a lot of them dip in and dip out as often as they need it. We have a play therapy service then for brief siblings as well, because it's a hugely impactful um, um, experience for them, you know. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk and the, the, they will see it in the, the theoretical um texts about the ghost in the nursery and the haunted womb and all that and while they're very frightening ways of putting it they're very true mm. you know and so support for sim that's lovely that you know it's the whole family who's been bereaved and it's the whole family <laughs> yeah. that has to be supported people feel uh, there's a huge sense of failure shame and stigma when your baby dies mm. 
Now, it's an ace as well as being, I think there's a bit of societal stuff around it. But, you know, knowing that you can get all this stuff doing and, and helping someone else makes you, you know, feel better as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we try to get our volunteers. Like we would say to them, the first year, just come and help with the practical stuff because you're not in the position to help anyone else, really. So the first year, come and help. You say, come and help with the practical stuff. Come and help. We need you. Yeah. You know, we need you to help us to help everyone else. Mm. And it's usually practical stuff. They're not ready to help. You're not the first year. You're traumatized. Um, You don't see it at the time. How can you? But they will listen to those of us that have tried the road before. That's yeah. making sense to you. And then the second year sometimes can be for some, for a lot of people, is worse than the first. So say again, your job now is to lean on us. And then when you want to be where I am or where the other, you know, um, senior volunteers are, for want of a better word, and I don't just mean senior in years either, that they will, um, you know, if you want to be there, your job of work now mm-hmm. is to go through what you're going through and to feel it and to um, to mourn your baby, grieve your baby and do the work now. And then you will be there in a few years when I'm retired or when the other volunteers have moved on. This will be your job. But for now, you must go through the process. Down the road, then we have a few now that are in training at the moment through social worker psychotherapy degrees and um, are on placement. We have two play therapists who have, you know, come out the other side and went back to do their postgrads in play therapy. And, um, you know, they, they changed the direction their careers after the death of their child some people then just dip in and out there you know they would come to the remembrance services remember their baby light their candle say their name we say the names of all the babies at the end of the service and they bring up a candle for the month for their baby uh, the day of the month you know that the baby is remembered and that that's enough mm, for, them. for them and so um tell us one of the things that um that that I love. I, I've I've been reading about Philicon setting up soccer teams for dads, and I just think, what a fantastic what a fantastic idea. Tell us more about that. Oh, we stole that idea too. <laughs> no, but yeah, but isn't that the best thing? It's like that's yeah, a great idea. We'll have that. Yeah, that's what we do. We keep yeah, we keep an eye on what's going on. You see, we're small, as I said, so we can see what's going on and set it up quickly. So the lads um, were challenged by uh, an Irish dad that's in Cardiff and uh, he was setting up his team and then just said, was talking to one of our lads and said, why don't we challenge you to a, a match? But it just took off in Ireland as things do. So, um, yeah, we were very disappointed because of the current COVID situation that we couldn't have the match, but we will have it. And they're out training and um, doing what dads do you know grieving and expressing themselves the way they do it's just not the same way we would maybe definitely not Uh, but tell 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 people about the shirts they're beautiful soccer shirts well their soccer shirts has their baby's date and name on it from what i remember they've been kept a secret for me now so you know more than i do oh oh, am i allowed to tell you (laughs) oh you can yeah what was beautiful was just this idea of these two teams of men going out to play soccer and every single man has the number zero on their back representing the fact that none of their babies got to live to one and then and then the child's name as well and yeah I mean they're very creative and they're very hard working and uh, like we're very disappointed it didn't 
work out, but it will. And the older dads have been telling me, I mean, they're still much younger than me, but they were saying that uh, the younger dads coming up are talking to them and asking them questions that they have nowhere else to go with. People grieve differently and need different things at different times. So what would you, what do you want to tell the world at large to do when they know people who've experienced this kind of loss? For us is talk, be available to talk to them about their baby. Mm. If you don't know what to say, what's wrong with saying, I don't know what to say, I want to help you. I don't know how to tell me how to help you. If you can, if not, I'm here. And, um, you know, it can be just saying the baby's name, remembering if they would have been six months old today, remembering all those hidden anniversaries of the heart that when I think it was um, some writer wrote about that to bereave parents are huge. Mother's Day, Father's Day. We would say to them is to say the baby's name. And if someone gets upset, that's okay. You know, they're upset anyway. They might just now be expressing it. And um, like we were saying in Felicon, and it's um, saying my baby's name may bring a tear to my eye, but it will also bring music to my heart. And we would say that to people, look, you know, someone might get upset when you're talking about their baby, but that's just an outward expression of what they're already feeling. Mm-hmm. And before you get into uh, to talking with somebody that, you know, is tra- traumatically bereaved, be sure you're in a space and you're ready to be able to hear what they say. Because sometimes we, we're, we're so used to people not listening to us that if you get a listening ear at all, maybe you tell them way too much. And suddenly they're going, oh, God, you know, I didn't sign up for this. So be able to hear what may come out because they mightn't have anyone else to talk to either. Do you think it's time to, I guess, thinking about grief more generally, that it's time to support people to grieve in a more individualized way? And, you know, we know now that the kind of stages of grief and Kubler-Ross and all that aren't actually based in reality. Um, But respecting people to, to, to grieve the way they want to. I suppose everyone thinks that uh, Kubler-Ross's way is the way because that's what we read in the media or I don't know how many times my own students will produce that to me after I'm screaming at them in class, do not give me this. Or if you give it to me, give it to me in a respectful way. That is, this was a point of departure. It was a start, you know, so I won't be dissing dissing her, but um, that this was certainly was um, a, a, a way of trying to understand grief. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's one way. But I have been, you know, in my own um, my own students trying to say look at a different way and see how people are grieving look at the cultural way look at the age the different um, age of the person their attachments and all that so we look at that theoretical part and then I think the biggest issue for me in current um, uh, ways of looking at grieving is we don't give time we don't understand that the first while, and we say while all the time in Felicon, we don't say months, we don't say years. The first while, the first period, the first piece of, um, of, of work is trying to deal with the shock and the trauma where it becomes so unreal. So you could have somebody whose baby has died who appear to be doing very, very well. They are because it's, it's only gone into the first level. But they're not, um, we, we would say like it's gone skin deep, it hasn't gone heart deep yet. Mm-hmm. And that they're wandering along and then it could be a year later when they're going, oh, geez, look what's after happening to me. They, you know, she's gone. Was I ever pregnant? And now it's gone. And suddenly they're in a, a place of absolute hell. Mm-hmm. So give them time. And to accept what's coming out. It might be months. It might be the following year. But a, a significant death impacts on people. 
you know, and just because they're not telling us in their nearest and dearest, so they're trying to protect us sometimes, you know, it could be so the people that they're telling how hard they feel. I know that um, from Liliana, like I struggled the first year and thought it'd get better. And then I lost the little baby James. But while I was pregnant with James, I experienced great joy again. So I knew I had the capacity within me to be happy in a different way. Then my sister died tragically and, um, you know, with um, hospital acquired infections. And it was it was very traumatic. I mean, her death was prolonged rather than her life prolonged by the treatment. But um, I just felt after she died, this is my life. Um, I am now, you know, feeling like shite. I probably feel like shite for the rest of my life. And I just have to get on with it. Because, you know, any other, there was, I wasn't looking at any other um, yeah. alternative. So this is my life, so I have to get on with it. And then I started feeling better. So then I thought, so this is what acceptance is. I said, okay, so I'm feeling a little bit better. Then the time went on and I'd look at something beautiful and then I'd make myself look at it longer and say, this is beautiful. And then maybe the sadness will go, what's the point anyway, you know? And one night, a few years after it was all going on, I don't know how many years it took, but it took years. I was sitting in Romania and I'd been, our kids had gone back to the orphanage and I was, um, you know, on their bus, like they were quite happy. And I was then um, looking at the moon rising over the Black Sea while the sun went down at the other side. And it's very rare that this happens. And I thought, God, isn't that absolutely stunningly beautiful? And I was waiting for the Abbott's all shit anyway. And it didn't come. I said, this is beautiful and it's beautiful and I'm okay. And I knew then that I was, um, I had integrated the whole lot into my life mm-hmm. and um, that I was just starting to, I was okay. For many people, we need to think about there's not just bereavement, but there's traumatic bereavement and that very often stillbirth fits in that category. What Talk to me about the traumatic and side. We don't, okay, so a lot of the time we don't understand trauma and I'm glad to see that uh, trauma and farm practice is now you know, a key component of a lot of training programs. Working with somebody who's been bereaved, as we would see, traumatically, um, which would be unexpectedly, tragically, violently, is a very different piece of work than working with somebody with your, you know, common or garden bereavement. Um, you know, we ex- grieving is a natural part of life. We're going to lose people all the time. We have rituals around it and we have expectations around it. But very few of us expect to lose a child. We hope we won't lose a partner, a life partner. We don't expect to lose our parents young. But even if we do, that's still more natural than using the gen- losing the generations that come after you. And it's trying to help people to deal with shock mm-hmm. and trauma first is the hardest thing because we need to understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, that people freeze they or they just don't take it in and um, it appears that they're functioning very normally and it's in fact that they're absolutely frozen inside mm-hmm. and does that and presumably then you're trying to deal are you dealing with those in parallel or how does that work you know do, do you have to deal with the trauma first or do they well, like, you know, I can't even give rules for everyone else. I knew that I had to deal with it in tandem, you know, and that one bled into the other. The roles, the boundaries of all of each of them were were, were blurred all the time. Yeah. And that sometimes I would be dealing with the shock that, Jesus, this happened. How did it happen? You know, I should have done this. I should have done the, done the other. If I then, you know, this whole theory of preventability, that if I had done this, it wouldn't have happened. And why didn't I shout louder? Why didn't I do the other? 
a huge part here though is the the way you know prior to the death and especially in stillbirth if you were listened to or if you felt you know i wait till next week now and say to the doctor then that that has a huge impact on a lot of the mothers if you don't listen to someone what you're putting on them again is what i'm saying isn't worth you listening to me you know that what i'm saying must be wrong the other thing was i want to say to people about um when she was born no one told me what she was I had to ask the doctor because I was afraid to touch her. And when I've said that to some people, you can see the look on their face. like, oh, God, that's too deep. Don't go in there. Then I didn't. You know, that there was, um, we have to be, if you're in this line of work, you have to be able to cope with love or with respect and with um, caring for the person with what they're going to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not easy and it's not nice. None of it. And they've no one else who can listen to some of those details. So Mary, you know, you deal with so much. And I know as an adoption social worker, you deal with a lot of crisis. You deal with, and there's a lot, there's a lot of, of heavy, hard stuff going on in the world right now. So what are the things you do to look after yourself? When I was in the Balkans, I worked with really high acting stuff and I just was go, 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 go. Anyone that spoke to me about resilience or self-care, I would have just wimp written all over my face, you know, don't go there. Like we work to do and all you want to do is look after yourself, you know, get back out of here, get out of our way. We're sorting this. And I didn't listen. I was in my, you know, if I started fostering when I was 22, which is way too young, but you know, that's the way things were then. And um, the, um, <sighs> you know, it was full on all the time. I never took the time and I'm paying for it now. Because now I have to look at, I get flashbacks now of things that happened in Eastern Europe in the, in the 90s. I flashbacks to the 70s from some of my foster siblings and what they went through. And I just have to meet it and face it. I spend an awful lot of time doing maybe pottery, you know, doing, um, I think, the handprints of the babies. I love doing those. And when I'm painting them or glazing them, I'm out of my head and just actually very, you know, calm with it. I do an awful lot of walking and I have a little grandson that um, I, he really breaks me. <laughs> I really enjoy being with him. But I spend a lot of time now just in the garden or finding whatever it, it is that I can do that will slow me down and that I will just sit and listen, and, you know, to what my feelings were about that. But if I had done the work back then and taken the time, I wouldn't have to do it now. And I'm doing it now because I don't want to do it when I'm 80. You can't get into the water without getting wet. And I didn't realise that. Mm-hmm. If you're working with trauma, you take it home. I don't, and if you're, you know, no one is that good that they can leave some of it behind. And if you're, maybe, if you are, you have to look and see, am I burning out? But now I find I have to walk. I have to swim or I have to um, I have to get out into nature. That's what works for me. For some people, it could be going to cinema, whatever it is that floats your boat is if you don't do the work now, you will be doing it someday. And I'm really are a person who's, you know, where's the party like and where's the next big session going? 
But now I have to spend a few hours a day, you know, apart from being in like nighttime and all that, where I have to seek solitude. And I'm lucky I drive a lot and Ireland is a beautiful country. Mary, it's been a delight to talk with you today. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. And thank you for all the great work that you and Fela Corn are doing to support bereaved parents in Ireland and beyond. I know it is going to help both parents who've been bereaved and the people that are wanting to support them. Thank you. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. You can listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz or on nziwr.co.nz or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. To purchase books or online programs on coping with loss and resilient grieving, go to nziwr.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.